Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. He's a New York Times bestselling author, editor-at-large for Salon Magazine, named Best Writer 2020 in Baltimore Magazine. Now, Dee Watkins' book, We Speak for Ourselves, is the one-book Baltimore selection for 2020. And that has him doing what he loves, reaching out to kids right here in Baltimore City. Dee Watkins, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you for having me. First of all, I'm sort of asking everybody this question because I think it's the question everybody's interested in is, you know, this pandemic has been such a weird time. So how are you doing? How are you doing sort of in quarantine in the house, all of that stuff? How are you and your family doing? We're doing great. You know, I'm, I, I hate that, you know, poor leadership has caused us to be in this position. But mm-hmm. at the same time, um, You know, I've been through some difficult things in my life and my wife has been through some difficult things in her life. So we're able to bounce back and to, you know, we're able to face adversity. It's not, you know, it's not crazy for us. Um, We did have a, we have a baby. She was born in January. So she literally knows nothing but COVID life. She just turned eight months today. And, um, you know, we've been so fortunate and so blessed to be able to spend so much time at home with her. So that's been like the best thing that happened since the pandemic began. Yeah. I mean, everyone keeps talking about how 2020, uh, 2020, but 2020 has been a pretty kick butt year for you because <laughs> you had a baby. Um, you were named best writer in Baltimore magazine. You have one of your articles that has been optioned by 20th century. I mean, there's a lot going on that's been good in 2020 for you, right? <laughs> yeah, I've been fortunate. I've had a lot of great things happen. So it would be even better if I was able to go out and, and celebrate some of these things and, and spend some time with some friends and, and things like that. But I'm, I'm definitely lucky and blessed and I'm thankful for everything that's happening. And since the last time we talked about two years ago on the podcast, you mentioned you have become a father. So how much has that sort of changed your whole worldview? It was like, it's like a reset on life for me. Mm-hmm. When our daughter was born, it felt like I was born again. And it felt like I have a second chance at this thing called life and the opportunity to be able to use all of the mistakes I've made in my life and all of the things I've wanted in my life and work really hard at providing them for her and allowing her to learn from some of the things that I had to learn from and and just creating this reality where where she can, can be acknowledged and free and loved and loved even more and nurtured and cared for and and blessed. And I'm, you know, I'm just happy that that I I get to play that role. One of the big things that you've been doing for a long time is reaching out to Baltimore youth and kids in school. Being a dad now, does it sort of take on a whole new meaning, that meaningful work you are already doing? Yes, it feels like it's it's more urgent because um, I didn't have a lot coming up and I wasn't able to be exposed to a lot of different things when I was younger. And so that's the energy that initially put me inside of schools. And now that I have a child, I, everything just seems more urgent, like not to be cliche or, or say that, you know, I didn't care before she was born, but it just, it makes everything more urgent as adults, as mentors, as entrepreneurs, as artists, like we have to work really, really hard at leaving this place better than it was before we got here. That's our mission. We have to leave something 
for the next generation. And we're only going to be able to do that if we're present. You know, somebody work hard to leave this world the way it is for me. And even though I didn't get a chance to meet a lot of those people, it, it doesn't mean that they didn't care and they didn't want me to have it better. So I, I have to work to make it better. And, and people who care have to do the same. So I, I just feel like it was important before my daughter was born. And now it's even more urgent. One of the ways, I guess, this year you're going to be able to reach out to kids is being chosen as the writer for One Book Baltimore this year. And for people that don't know what One Book Baltimore is, it's um, all the seventh and eighth graders in Baltimore City Schools are going to get a copy of Dee's book, uh, We Speak for Ourselves. They'll be encouraged to read it. Dee will be doing class visits. So what did it mean to you to hear that your book was chosen for this? It's the highlight of my career. Anybody around Baltimore City, especially people in the school system, know that I was breaking my neck to get my work inside of schools before I even had a book out. I was there and working hard and collaborating with teachers and helping create little strategies to get their kids to read more, to get their kids to care about their backstories and their families and the city that we come from. So this has been like before I even knew it was my mission, it was my mission. And this is kind of everything coming full circle to be able to have the opportunity to not just visit these classes at a higher level, but to be worked into curriculum and celebrate it. It's just, um, I have to pinch myself because sometimes it doesn't even feel real. And I, I recently found out I may be the, since they started one book, Baltimore, I'm the first Baltimore guy to get it. So that makes it even like that more special. And I want to work really hard to, you know, with the Pratt and with the school system and all of the generous donors, T. Rowe Price and everybody else involved to, you know, I want to work hard for everybody to make sure this is, this is one to remember. Absolutely. What do you hope students will get out of your book? We speak for ourselves, your latest book, and it's so powerful based in Baltimore, your stories. What do you hope students will connect with? But um, I want them to understand the power that they have as individuals and the power of direct service and to be able to understand that you may not have the resources and connections needed to build a hospital, but you can help one of your classmates with their homework. You can help some of the elderly residents in your community with their groceries and things like that. You can participate in neighborhood cleanups. Like There's little things that we all can do to make our communities better. We can work extremely hard at all of the forgotten about things that is needed to tie communities together. And sometimes I think with social media and with the way modern activism is, we get caught up in these platforms and these people who give these big speeches and these big organizations and these big foundations. And we kind of forget about the power we have as individuals. So I would really, really hope that these young people understand that even though they're in the seventh grade and even though they're in the eighth grade, they can still play a role in making their neighborhoods a better place. A book like this, I think it really speaks to, especially in Baltimore City, the kids in school in Baltimore City. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Kondwani Fidel about his new book, and he talked about how the curriculum that he sees in school is almost a form of literary racism because kids don't see themselves in these books. Do you feel like a program like this really offers that? When I was coming up, they wouldn't even think about putting a book like The Cook Up or The B-Side or We Speak For Ourselves in schools. Um, I think Kondamani being about 10 years younger than me, he had it kind of, it was a little different for him. He got a chance to interact with some teachers who cared more about telling Black stories, but they wasn't really telling stories about people coming out of East Baltimore. Kondamani and I were from the same neighborhood. 
So you would never expect to walk into a school and read about the guy from down the hill or a guy from the projects or something like that. Like that just wasn't a thing. So I definitely understand where he's coming from. But I will say that there has been some brave teachers in Baltimore City, especially since I started my professional career, who have been working really hard and getting these stories into the classroom. So I think that well, these kids aren't really going to connect to Shakespeare, but if we do like a cross between a D. Walking story and Romeo and Juliet, then they'll pay attention and they can make the comparisons and they can talk about whose style they like better and they can be fun and they can be creative. And you're giving them that classic literature that you want young people to have. Like they've taught my work alongside Frederick Douglass at a lot of schools for years, being as though um, we both write in that narrative style. And we, we try our best to explain our lessons through some of the, our hardships and even some of the things we enjoy and celebrate or our idea of what America is versus what America could be. And, you know, even though like the way my messaging is way more different than that of Frederick Douglass, it's a similar writing style. So I think it has been better in comparison to where I come from. And um, I'm excited when I get messages from teachers and I find out that they're teaching my work or they're teaching Kondwani Fidel and they're using Devin Allen's photos or mm-hmm. they're using poetry by Tariq Torre and, and the students get excited because, you know, oh, we're reading this book that this guy, that Watkins wrote, and he was at Northeast Market, <laughs> you know, buying a fish platter. So it's like, it makes the story more relevant to them and it's more relatable. So I feel like there's been some positive changes and and like I said, spearheaded by some some brave teachers and and then people, you know, amazing people like Dr. Santelis who gives a lot of teachers the support they need to be able to make these things happen. So it's just been a blessing for us. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Go back to school at the Pratt. The library is here to help with virtual learning, from lending hotspots and tablets to live tutoring and more. Let us help you this school year. Details at prattlibrary.org. Why do you think it's so important for kids to be able to see themselves in literature? I think you've talked about how important that was for you to foster that love of learning, because if you don't see yourself in a book, then you may not think education's really for you. Yeah, and you know, uh, the literature that, that I was given, somebody was represented. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot, a, lot, a lot of people was represented and a lot of people were able to, um, to see themselves in a book. When you see something in a book, it kind of becomes the definitive rule. So if, you know, if it's in a book, it has all the backing needed to, to it's, it's a law. Um, and so if you're reading a book and, you know, if a little girl's reading a book and the princess doesn't look like her and, Mm-hmm. doesn't have a nose like her and, and doesn't have hair like her. And maybe she feels like she doesn't fit into the definition of, of beauty and what that means in America, right? You know, books are powerful and, and they mean a lot. And African-Americans have been grossly underrepresented in literature since the book was invented. So, um, <laughs> you know, black stories and black people in general. So I think it's extremely important. And um, I think that we see the difference. Like I said, you don't have to take my word. You can talk about the impact that some of my work has had in some of these schools in Baltimore. And teachers will tell you. I gave students any and everything under the book, but they read D. Watkins front to back and asked for more. And, you know, and I'm just like, I'm blessed because that's who I had in mind when I write a whole lot of this stuff. Um, we Speak for Ourselves is probably the only real book on race and activism 
fake activism versus real activism and the power of direct service written for young people. Um, it's older people read it and think it's a race book and it was marketed towards them, but the book is really for young people. It's for those young seventh and eighth graders who are trying to figure out how to do better than the generation um, before them. You talk about that fake activism versus real activism, and I think we saw some of that. Um, you know, Baltimore is kind of, I feel like we're sort of ahead of the time because of what happened here in 2015. You talk about that fake activism versus real activism. Explain what that means to you. Well, you know, I think being an activist has become very commercialized and very lucrative. You can create these beautiful messages and these beautiful books talking for people and the messages in those books don't relate to the people who you're supposed to be representing and the platform that you represent doesn't do anything. It, it doesn't equal to any type of liberation for the people who you're supposed to be representing. So it becomes fake. It becomes something that's, that's not real. And a lot of these people are crafty and talented and they had the opportunity to come to towns like Baltimore, like Ferguson and suck up resources and hit the nonprofits up and, you know, sell their little graphic t-shirts and then they just run to the next town when the next tragedy happens. And the purpose of the book wasn't even to demonize those people, but to tell young people that if you meet one of these people who you know as like a famous superstar type of activist and you try to say hi to them and they say, get away from me, I'm not taking pictures right now, don't get your heart broke. <laughs> and understand that the real work starts when the cameras stop. The real work starts when the protest is over. The real work starts when the foundation is not pulling up to give you money and you're not being invited to hang out with celebrities and people's not out here trying to praise you for saving the world, even though there's still unarmed Black people being killed by police officers almost every day. So the real work starts when all that nonsense stops and don't get caught up in that because you're taking your eye off the bar and change won't happen. Mm -hmm. And real work, I mean, it comes down to being in the community, being entrenched in the community, being committed to the community. You talk a little bit about that in an article you wrote for Salon back in June as for what has been happening this summer across the country. Do you feel like that's a lesson that maybe we've learned in Baltimore that the big activists, the national activists come in, but it comes down to what the community does after. Do you feel like that's a lesson that now has to be learned nationally in all these cities where all of these uprisings have happened? Yeah, I think um, people were asking, well, there's all of this looting and crazy stuff going on all over the country. How come people aren't turning up Baltimore? And in the article I wrote, because those young people who jumped out there after Freddie Gray was killed by those police officers who still work for Baltimore City Police Department right now, Mm -hmm. But after he was killed by those police officers and the young people took to the streets, some of them young people, their lives were changed forever. Some of them went to jail. Some of them have to pay heavy fines and restitution. Some of them are still suffering, even though they were on the front lines fighting for justice that their dads and granddads and great granddads and moms and grandmoms and great grandmoms was robbed of. And a lot of nonprofit money came into Baltimore. I don't work the nonprofit circuits like that. I don't really, I've never been into that kind of thing. I'm not against it, but I don't know how these things work. So people was coming at me like, you want some of this foundation money? And I'm like, no, I'm not taking any money just to be taking money. Like if, if I can plug you with somebody who I know is making sure those funds are being allocated towards the children and communities that need them, 
and that's their business, then I'll do that. But I'm just an artist. I go to schools. Um, a lot of books I've donated have been with my own money. Um, my foundation because they, they, they bought a ton of my books and gave them away. But I did a lot of stuff on my own. Um, it's why we work so hard. Like it, we work hard to be able to create infrastructure to be able to keep this, you know, these book giveaways and these things going instead of waiting for people to step up and do it. So I think um, people in Baltimore learned, you know, they learned that attention and money goes to people, the people who weren't in the streets and the people who were actually in the streets were sitting in jail. So no, Baltimore wasn't going to get torn apart because we see what happens when these types of things go wrong. And then to just make, you know, I guess to bring it all full circle, the biggest criminals doing the uprising was the Gun Trace Task Force because their leader, Wayne Jenkins, actually stole hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Percocets mm-hmm. while CVS was on fire. And he ended up getting a medal from the police commissioner for being such a great cop doing the uprising, even though cops killed the citizen and walked away. So this is the stuff we got to deal with. And this is the stuff I have to keep in mind as I go out here and, and, and try to do the work that I do. I'm glad you brought up the Gun Trace Task Force because I read your Huffington Post piece in May where you really compared your life to Officer Daniel Hersel's life. And it's my understanding that that story has been optioned by 20th Century Studios. Is that right? Yeah, we published the article and I went to bed one night and I woke up to like a bidding war. And um, I was shocked that like, you know, because I've been writing the same way and I've been writing in a similar style for a really, really long time. So I, you know, and people come at me about television stuff all of the time. And I'm from East Baltimore. I don't really, I don't believe in anything until it actually happens. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, so when my agent had called me up and he was really, really excited, I, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I had to tell him, hey, calm, calm down for a second, buddy. Are you, <laughs> is yeah. everything okay? And um, he was just happy that there was so much excitement around the piece and. And we, we, you know, I'm going to be working with some um, some Waya alumni uh, on developing this show, and I'm, you know, I'm 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 excited. You know, I mean, we we're in the pandemic right now, and everybody who I work with and everybody around me, we we take the pandemic seriously. You may never see me without my mask on, <laughs> unless I'm putting food in my mouth. But um, you know, I've I've been taking it seriously, so we're looking forward to getting into that when these things start to slow down and, and when we get a show running and we get the ball rolling. And I also been fortunate enough to be hired to work on um, a David Simon show. So I'm, um, I'm excited about that too. So I get to, I get to learn all these amazing things from, from George Pelicanos and David Simon in the writer's room. But at the same time, I get to be executive producer of my own show, which is like, you know, all of these things are just dreams come true. I know. That's amazing. I want to talk about the Huffington Post piece for people who haven't had a chance to read it. Tell me a little bit about how you came up with this. This is a tough piece and it took a lot of, I think, vulnerability on your part and then being able to sort of look into the officer's life. I, it, was, it was a really powerful piece. Yeah. When I sat down to do it, I wanted to talk about how we're just two guys who come from the same part of town and we were only about a mile apart that our realities were completely different. And when I first sat down to write a piece, I was digging for dirt. I was digging for dirt and I was trying to, you know, because I know my dirt and I have no problem talking about the bad things I've done and, you know, how I try to, you know, what redemption looks like. So 
I wanted to kind of dig into his backstory and see what that was about. But as my editors was like, even though you need to find some of the good stuff too. And mm-hmm. I was like, it left a nasty taste in my mouth. But I was like, you know what? At the end of the day, everybody's loved by somebody, <laughs> you know? Um, everybody's loved by somebody. And the way he's has been a nightmare to people from my neighborhood, he's been an angel and a blessing to somebody else. And if we're really going to try to to get to the human side of, um, if we're going to focus on humanity in general, then we got to be honest about that. So I had to be honest about that. And I had to go into his hangout spots and I had to go to places in Baltimore that I'd never really been before. And I had to have conversations with people who were initially uncomfortable with me, but became comfortable with me because I kept coming around and I became like a fixture in their establishments. And some of them interviews are um, going to be on camera because um, HBO had followed me while I was working on a story. Oh. So that's something else that's supposed to be coming out. It's, it's a documentary about the death of Sean Suda. I can't talk too much about it, but I'm really excited for people to see some of that process. Yeah, you talk about, it's so interesting when you compare your life to Daniel Herschel's life, and you talk about how it was really the failed drug war that impacted both of your lives in completely different ways. Tell me a little bit more about how that impacted your life and then his life as well. You know, he was he was caught up in the side of the drug war that allowed him to be able to do the wrong thing and constantly be rewarded. I was caught up in the side of the drug war where it was the only option for a whole lot of people from our neighborhood. The thing that connects us the most is that we both had the option to do the right thing. And I figured out it was the era and you know and my ways and what I was doing wrong and I tried to make it right and he he didn't. And that's that's what we defer. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Join in the conversation with One Book Baltimore, encouraging 7th and 8th graders, their families, and the community to read D. Watkins, We Speak for Ourselves. Pick up your copy at the Pratt today. One Book Baltimore is sponsored by the T. Rowe Price Foundation, Baltimore City Schools, the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and other community partners. More details at prattlibrary.org. You even went and talked to his brother. Was that difficult for you knowing that? I mean, this was an officer that you even interacted with who had like kicked you in the ribs at certain points and, you know, stolen money out of your pockets at certain points. Was it strange to approach his brother and kind of try and have that conversation with him? Yeah, it was was kind of strange because um, I think that his brother was thinking that I was coming in there to advocate for them. And I've never said that. I told him straight up, I'm coming to get the backstory, the whole story. And I want to do a a piece where, you know, I talk about everything. So um, yes, I'm going to talk about what's in the media, but I'm also going to talk about some of the things that the media left out. You know, I wanted to give like a whole picture and his brother was down for me at first. And then um, after our first meeting, which was like a really, really long time, I think that he did a little bit of research and was like, wait a second, this guy, he's an anti-cop guy. I ain't talking to him no more. And then we kind of fell out. But um, I mean, it was it was funny, you know, and he's, you know, obviously like his, this is oldest brother. So Hurst was already like 10 years older than me. And mm-hmm. then his brother's maybe like in his 70s or something like that. So like it's a it's an older guy. I wasn't 
gonna like walk up on him and say, "Hey, your brother did this, and your brother did that." Like I, I wasn't, I didn't have that type of energy. I really wanted the whole story, and he helped me out a lot. And, and, and then he kind of disappeared. And I sent him the article. I hope he, I hope he liked it. Yeah, I think it's interesting because towards the end of the article, you talk about how because um, Daniel Harshner was also one of the only officers that didn't sort of admit any kind of guilt and still says that he's innocent. And you talk about sort of comparing your life to his and realizing that you did some bad things and that you're trying to make it right, whereas like he sort of is still in denial. It was just a really interesting way to uh, juxtapose the two of you and how just in that one thing that you've done, it's changed the whole course of your lives. Yeah, and one of the things that he struggles with that a lot of people struggle with is just accountability. It's so hard for people to see themselves, <laughs> you know, and sometimes people never want to be held accountable for anything until they're literally on their deathbed. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work like that. If, as humans, we have to understand that times change. People change. Our mentalities change. We evolve. Like, we're people. We didn't always have it figured out. Maybe at one point in his life, he was taught that, okay, so these are the black guys from the streets. Nobody cares about them, so I'm, I'm going to treat them however I want to treat them because nobody really cares. And now that he's, he has to see that so many people care, you know, that he should be able to say, wow, what I was doing is wrong, and now I have to figure out ways I can make it right. First, by admitting that I was wrong. Second, by, you know, even trying to reconcile and apologize with some of the people that I hurt. And it's very humbling and it's very difficult. And these aren't easy conversations, but we'll never grow and move forward or be anything if we can't do that. And we talked a little bit about this summer and seeing what's happening across the country and people marching in all different cities across the country. Does that give you hope or do you just want to see what's next? I'm into results. You know, like people always send me messages and hit me up and tag me and post on social media saying things like, they painted Black Lives Matter in the streets. Aren't you so happy? And I'm like, I mean, all that stuff is fun and cool, but like that does that's not going to stop me from getting my head blown off by a police officer. That's not going to stop people from being discriminated against because of what their name is. That's it's not going to stop all of the, the, the structural racism that exists, um, that this country thrives on. <laughs> racism is, is this country's number one resource, and it's not going to stop that. So, you know, it's a good gesture, but I think that if a police officer sees a black person and draws his gun I don't think he's going to not pull the trigger because a memory flashes in his head. Wait a second. They painted Black Lives Matter on the street two blocks away. I think this guy lives matter. I think this guy has a life that matters, so I'm not going to kill him. It doesn't work like that. Yeah, exactly. I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, you name all of the, the people here in Baltimore, uh, groups of artists and writers that are close to you, people that you mentor, the people you surround yourself with that inspire you, like Ndwani and Devin. How has that helped you in Baltimore? And I mean, all of these guys and you obviously are like, are making huge names on the national scene. So what do you feel like that means for the kids in Baltimore that are looking up to you and your friends? You know, when I was trying to stop my career, there wasn't a lot of people that I could lean on to get connected 
with editors and book publishers and, and people like that. So um, once my career started going, then I started meeting people like the Will Hiltons and, and the David Simons and, and the Westmores and all of these different people who had connections and are able to, to give me advice or, or to point me in the right direction. But I didn't have that when I was on the come up. So I always told myself that if I ever became somebody with some influence, then I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hog those resources and I'm not going to be a person that you can't get on the phone. I'm going to be a person that's going to share that love because if we're building a community, especially a strong community, art community in Baltimore, then we need to make sure that everybody's getting love and everybody's getting connections and everybody's blowing up on a national stage because all of these people love Baltimore and all of these people are talented and those two things don't really mean nothing if you don't have a place to <laughs> platform that to showcase and share that mm -hmm. love and that talent. So we got to make sure that other artists are doing their thing. And I think a lot of kids admire the fact that we don't walk around on these clouds and just make it about ourselves all of the time because it's, it's really not about us. It's, it's about the young people and it's about us making sure we're giving them good examples to follow. Mm-hmm. Do you hope that they're able to look at I mean, I think the interesting part is, you know, Kandwani does spoken word. Devin does photos and art. Chris Wilson does amazing artwork. Do you feel like in different ways, each one of you can inspire some of these kids that are in school that don't have someone to look up to? Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, I think um, Chris is so gifted and he's been pushing me to do art and, and Devin pushes us to try photography and we sit Devin down in front of the computer and we make him write. So it's like, you know, we're all getting chances to explore and try to do art in different ways because of our connection. And I think, um, I think our communities thrive like that as well. Mm -hmm. So One Book Baltimore really kicks off in October. It ends around the winter. What do you hope in the end is accomplished with this program, with you being able to have such a big platform with Baltimore City Schools? I hope the young people say, wow, this guy comes from our city and he loves our city and he still lives here. And we get a chance to read and connect and interact with his work. And, you know, if he can do it, then we can do it too. As long as, you know, I, I, we get some people to say that and to, and to feel that, then I know that we all did our jobs. Because, you know, like the Pratt and like the school system and like myself, we all love young people and we want to make sure they, they get what they deserve. Mm -hmm. D. Watkins, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Need a book, audiobook, hotspot, or more? Sidewalk service is now available at 14 Enoch Pratt Free Library locations. Pick up your materials contact free. Remote printing is also available on site. Make an appointment today at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.